Good morning. Glad you all are here. Why don't you grab your Bibles, if you will. There should be plenty of Bibles scattered in the pew backs in front of you. And uh, we're going to be sort of uh, in a whole host of passages this morning as we continue in our summer series, Ask the Pastor, Week 2. Uh, if you want to begin where we will begin, you can turn to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. But like I said, we will be sort of throughout the Old and New Testaments as we uh, answer question number two in week number two of Ask the Pastor. I uh, appreciate the questions. Keep them coming. Some wonderful questions and uh, some hard ones. You guys are not giving me a week off, right? Great questions. I really appreciate that. Um, so uh, I, I trust that you're there in Psalm 19 or close to it. Let's pray, and then we will dive right in. So uh, if you would pray with me one more time, please, Father, thank you so much for this day. It is so good for us to sing our praises to you. It is good for us to give you the fruit of our lips as well as the fruit of our wallets. Lord, we give freely to you because you have freely given to us, and you are generous to us. And so we want to be generous in our support of your local church and of the church at large and the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it might go forth both here in Cisna Park and quite literally around the world. We are privileged to do it. And so, Father, be pleased with our songs, be pleased with our offering and our generosity, and now be pleased with the way that we sit and hear um, your word. Lord, help me to be faithful and true to your word. Help me to be accurate in the words that I speak. And Lord, soften our hearts that we might hear the answer that you would have for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Well, there is a man, and he is in Thailand. He is a, a rice farmer. And he lives about 85 miles outside of the large city of Bangkok. He lives with his wife and his four children uh, in a small rural village. And like many of those who live in Thailand, he is Buddhist, like his father before him and his grandfather before him, and on and on it goes, although he's not educated. He knows enough to put a little slip of paper in the prayer wheel. And he knows enough to go to the shrine and to bring offerings to Buddha. Christianity is not even a word to him because no missionary has ever entered his village. Well, there's a student, and he has come here to the University of Illinois, there in Champaign, a few miles south of us, uh, from Saudi Arabia. And he's come to study computer science, and he is a Muslim. He's a devout person, a moral man, and yet no one has ever shared with him, both at home nor here in Illinois, who Jesus is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a man who lives up in Oak Park. He grew up in the 60s, the political and moral turmoil. He's never been to church in his life, doesn't ever care to go to church in his life. And Jesus, to him, is simply what the tele-evangelists tell him about Jesus. So the question that we have this morning is what will be the eternal fate of people like this? People who have never had an opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who have never heard of Jesus or his life and death and burial and resurrection for them. Well, that's question number two posed for us today by one of you in your own words. Quote, how can people be saved who don't have the opportunity to hear the gospel? That's a wonderful question. I wanted to start out with the easy questions, and I didn't have any. So we're diving right into the hard ones. So let's just sort of make this a little bit more real for us, if we will. Missiologists tell us that there are roughly uh, 3.4 billion people in the world, 3.4 billion people in the world who don't profess to be Christians, right? So uh, maybe five and a half, six million people in the world, about half of them uh, are not Christians. Now, missiologists also tell us that of that 3.5 billion people in the world, about 2 billion of them 
have yet had the opportunity to hear uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe there's no radio broadcast in their language. Maybe they've never uh, haven't had an opportunity to own a Bible. Maybe uh, no missionary has ever darkened uh, their door. The gospel has not penetrated their culture. There is no Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church where they live. Friends, this is a wonderful question. It is a vital question. How can people be saved who don't have the opportunity, as of yet, to hear the gospel? Friends, we desperately need to hear a word of God on this matter. And thankfully, God's word is clear. And so here is the answer. I'm going to spell it out for you. I'm going to give us four reasons why this is the biblical answer, uh, and then we'll flesh it out. So uh, here is the answer. How can people be saved who don't have the opportunity to hear the gospel? The answer is this. People cannot be saved apart from the gospel. That's the answer. People cannot be saved apart from faith in Jesus Christ. For four reasons. Number one, because what we know about God through creation is both limited and insufficient. Number two, because we naturally suppress what we do know about God through creation and are therefore guilty for it. Number three, because faith in the gospel is the only means of salvation. The Bible makes it clear. Faith in the gospel is the only means of salvation. And number four, because God in his grace will send more revelation more revelation to those who haven't heard the gospel, who respond in faith to what they know about God in creation. So there's the sermon in a nutshell. Four reasons. How can people be saved who don't have the opportunity to hear the gospel? Friends, people cannot be saved apart from the gospel for four reasons. Number one, let's work our way through this. Reason number one, what we know about God through creation is both limited and and insufficient. So here's the underlying question to point number one. What do people who haven't heard about Jesus or the gospel, what can they know about God? What do they know about God? From many places in the scriptures, we learn that God reveals himself to all people. He speaks to all people through his creation. And then there are things that we both can and do know about God simply from the rivers and the trees and the mountains. Let's take a look at a couple key passages. Psalm 19 verses 1 through 4. The psalmist writes this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hand. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. Friends, what can we know about God from creation? Psalm 19 tells us that as we look up into the heavens, that the heavens and all of creation declares that there is a God and that He is glorious, that He is weighty. Day after day, there is no part of the world, there is no person in this world that does not see in creation that God exists and that He is glorious. A second key passage is found in Romans chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles open, please turn with me there. We will return to it in just a moment. Romans chapter 1. We'll be focusing in on verses 18 through 22, an absolutely vital text as we answer this question. Paul writes this, starting in verse 18. The wrath of God 
is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Why? Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. What truth is it that people suppress because they are wicked? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 19, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. So what do people, all people, know about God through creation and yet suppress because they are evil? Well, let's take a look at verse 20. For, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, two things he mentions, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. From what? Being understood from what has been made. Towards what end? So that people are without, what's the word, church? Excuse. So that people are without excuse. So what does Romans chapter 1 teach us on this subject matter? Romans chapter 1 tells us that from the beginning of God's creation, two things can be known, at least. Number one, He is uh, God, right? His divine nature. That there is a God. And number two, that He is powerful, right? They look at the stars and they look at the mountains and they look at the Milky Way and we should and can say, there is a God and He is bigger than me. Right? He exists and he is powerful. So clearly, from these, just these two passages, we can know something about God. Every person knows something about God simply by living in the world that he made. We learn that he is glorious. He's weighty. He's significant. We learn that he is the creator and that we are the creation. We learn that he is divine. That is, he's different from us. He's distinct, fundamentally different from his creation. We learn that he is eternal and that he is powerful. Friends, not only does God reveal something of himself through creation, but we learn in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, that this creation of his is meant to point us towards him. That is, when we look at this created world, God wants us to seek after Him as Creator. Again, if you have your Bibles open, turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17, there we see Paul. He's speaking to the very sophisticated people in the city of Athens, and he's sharing the gospel with them. Notice what he says, in, starting in verse 24. The God who made the world... Notice, he, he begins with creation. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From the one hand, he made all nations towards what end? that they should inhabit the whole world. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the, the, the boundaries of their lands. Why? God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. So, so friends, the universe and all of the creation's blessings were given to us towards what end? So that we as creatures might seek after God. Friends, the time uh, that you were born, 
the family that you were born into, the country that you live in, whether it be China or the United States, are all a part of the wise and providential plan of God to, uh, to kick us, so to speak, to pursue a relationship with Him. However, however, God reveals Himself to us in a limited way through creation. We see quite a bit about God through creation, but we don't see everything there is to know about God, and we don't see everything that we need to know to be right with Him. And that's why God throughout history has revealed Himself in a host of other ways. Visions, dreams, prophets, through the Word of God, and ultimately, of course, through the living Word, through sending His Son, Jesus Christ. Friends, these and other passages make it clear that what we know about God from creation is good, but insufficient. It is necessary, but it is not all that there is to know for us to be saved. Notice, there are no passages in the Bible that tell us when we look up at the stars and the mountains that we can know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You can't see that by looking at the stream. Right? When Paul articulates the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, you can't look at the Milky Way and learn that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and he was raised again on the third day. So friends, God's revelation, what that, that farmer in Thailand and what the Muslim in Saudi Arabia, what they know about God is good, but it is insufficient. It's glorious, but it is limited. So the next question must be this. What do we naturally do with this knowledge that we learn from creation? The fact that God exists. The fact that we are not God. The fact that He is big and powerful. The fact that He is glorious. What, we, what do we do with this information in our fallen state? Well, to that we return again to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And we see a second reason why one cannot be saved apart from the gospel and faith in it. And it's reason number two. Because naturally, what we know of God through creation, we suppress. We reject. And we are guilty for it. Notice again, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. This word in Greek, uh, in suppress, means to, to push down against something. That is, there is a truth out there that wants to come to the forefront, but we, we push it down. Have you ever been at, at a pool or at the beach and you have a beach ball? Um, sometimes you can suppress it under the water, right? But what does it want to do? Naturally, it wants to pop back up, right? But we push it down, we suppress it. That's exactly what fallen humanity does with the truth of God that we see in creation. We suppress it. Because why? Because we're evil. Because we're wicked. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His power and divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood through what is made. But what do we do? We suppress that truth, and what does the Scripture say? Because of that, we are without excuse. What Paul makes so painfully clear here is that though all humans know that there is a God, know something about Him in creation, the natural reflex of our fallen condition is not to joyfully submit to Him, is not to seek after Him, but to suppress that truth. Why? Because we are fallen 
and wicked in our nature, we don't want to joyfully submit to God because therefore we are accountable to Him and we don't want to be accountable to Him. We want to do what we want to do. And we are without excuse. All people are without excuse. See, the key question here is this. Are people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus basically innocent before God or basically guilty before God? That's the question. And friends, the Bible clearly says that all people are basically guilty before God. Robert Mounts offers this helpful summary in his book, Themes from Romans. He says, no one is excluded. No one can get away with saying, I don't believe in God. As someone has once said, you can't turn out the light by closing your eyes. The heathen, he writes, who has never heard the gospel or the name of Jesus is as responsible as anyone else. Not for failing to accept a message he has never heard, but for rejecting the knowledge of God revealed in creation. People do not suffer eternal exclusion from God for not having been born to the right parents or in the right part of the world, but, he writes, for rejecting that knowledge of God which is readily available for all. Friends, that is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, hear me clearly. People don't go to hell simply for rejecting Jesus. People go to hell because they are sinners and because God is holy and just. Not believing in Jesus simply seals that fate. For example, for example, let's just say perhaps that our mythical farmer in Thailand is sick. And he goes to a, a local doctor. And after running some tests, that doctor tells the farmer, I'm sorry, I've got some bad news. You have an incurable cancer. There's no treatment that is available here and uh, we can't help you. Let's say that the very same day, over in Chicago, at the University of Chicago, that researchers discover a cure to this precise kind of cancer that that man has. But the man knows nothing about the researchers, and they know nothing about him. What will happen to that man unless he hears of the cure? In a few months, he'll likely be dead. Why did he die? He died because he had cancer, not because he didn't get the cure. Not getting the cure simply seals his fate. Friends, in the same way, the whole world is dying from the cancer of sin. Some people have it in advanced stages. Others will live for it for years. But we are all terminally infected with the cancer of sin. It will kill each and every one of us. But friends, there is good news. The cure has been found. Some 2,000 years ago in the blood of Christ. It's so powerful that it can cure the cancer of sin in all of its ugly forms. But here is the sad part. That good news, that story has been around for 2,000 years, but some people have not heard of it. Some people do not know of it. And what's worse, they don't even know that they're terminally sick with sin. They're dying, and they don't know it. What will happen when they die? In each and every case, the great corner of the universe will write on their death certificate cancer of sin as the cause of death. They are sinful people. They don't die because they've not heard the gospel. They die because they're sick with sin. Friends, this is what another commentator says on Romans chapter 1. This is the inescapable logic of Paul's, uh, conclusion of Paul's logic. No one is truly innocent before God. All are guilty to a greater or lesser degree. All mankind stands on death row. It's certainly true 
that those who hear the gospel and reject it are infinitely more guilty before God than those who have never heard it at all. Our God is not capricious in the ways he deals with men. The most fundamental picture of judgment is that God judges according to the light that men receive. Those who receive only the light of creation will receive much less punishment than those who saw and rejected the bright light of the gospel of Christ. But that principle that principle cannot overturn the larger point that no one is innocent before God. Friends, people cannot be saved apart from the gospel. Because what we know about God is good but limited and because we naturally suppress and reject that knowledge. Number three, no one can be saved apart from the gospel because faith in the gospel is the only means of salvation. It is the only way a person can be saved. I want to introduce you to a missionary of many, many years ago. His picture's on the screen behind me. His name is William Carey. Maybe you've known him. He's sort of the, known as the father of the modern missions movement. Now, he lived many years ago in the 1700s. He was a part of a Protestant mainline denomination. And as, as odd as it sounds, at that point in time, that Protestant mainline denomination were opposed to sending missionaries to uh, people who had never heard the gospel. Why? We can talk about it later. It had to do with their theology. At one meeting, uh, one of the leaders was uh, abruptly interrupted. Uh, excuse me. At one meeting, Kerry was standing, and he was trying to, to get the denomination to see that they, they needed to send missionaries. And one older pastor st- stood up and said this to him, quote, Young man, sit down. You're an, you are an enthusiast. What, when God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. That's amazing, isn't it? In fact, in 1769, there was a general assembly of his particular denomination, and of course, William was there, and uh, they passed the, the following infamous resolution, and I, and I quote, to spread the knowledge of the gospel amongst barbarians and heathens seems to be highly preposterous. Can you imagine that? That is hard to believe. One speaker in the House of Commons said that he would rather see a band of devils let loose in India than a band of missionaries. Isn't that amazing? In response, William Carey wrote a little article, and it was entitled, here it is, long title, ready, An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means, M-E-A-N-S, for the Conversion of the Heathens. In other words, he simply argued that Jesus' great commission applies to all Christians of all times, and he castigated his fellow Protestants for ignoring it, saying, Quote, multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners, who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. He held a conference. It was a missions conference. And he, he, he gave a sermon. In the highlight of that sermon, he said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And he did it. He, he formed a mission, uh, a mission agency, and a year later, he was in India, and thus sparked the, the modern Protestant missions movement. Friends, here's the point. Why? Why did he do that? Why? It's because, point number three, right? It's because you can't be saved apart from faith in the gospel. It was this core belief that faith in the gospel and faith in the gospel alone was the only means of salvation that propelled him to go and tell. And friends, it propels us to go and tell as well. To begin with, the Bible claims that one uh, is saved by the work of Christ alone, right? So, so Jesus says, I am what? 
the way and what? The truth and the life, right? And no one comes to the Father but through me. Numerous other passages could be mentioned. Only, only Christ can save us. But the Bible goes further than that. It tells that, uh, us that, that one can only be saved when they have personal and conscious faith and repentance and trust in Christ. In other words, it, it's not enough that Christ died for our sins and rose again. There is a personal repentance and faith in Jesus that must be expressed. And friends, hear me. That faith comes only when one hears the gospel message. Do you hear me? You can only place your faith in something that you've heard. Right? So follow the logic in Romans chapter 10. This is a vital passage. So if you have your Bibles, take a moment and turn there with me. Romans chapter 10. You got the Gospels, you got Acts, and then you got Romans. Romans chapter 10. Paul is arguing for the necessity of the Gospel for his fellow Jewish people. He says they need to hear the Gospel if they're going to be saved. Romans chapter 10. And he's making this argument. I, I want to pick it up in verse 13. He says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, just follow with me. If you want to be saved, what, you, what do you have to do? Call on the name of the Lord. With me? Shake your heads. Yes? Okay. You want to be saved? Call on the name of the Lord. Verse 14. How then can they call on the one that they haven't believed in? Okay, so you want to be saved, you call on the name of the Lord. If you want to call on the name of the Lord, what do you have to do? You have to believe in Him, right? You've got to believe to call to be saved. You with me? Okay, let's keep going. And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? You want to be saved? You call on the name of the Lord. You want to call on the name of the Lord? You've got to believe. If you want to believe, you have to believe in the one that they have. You have to what? You have to hear it. You with me? Okay, and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? So if you want somebody to hear, then what? What has to be shared? The message, the gospel. You have to preach to them, right? And how can anyone preach unless they are what? Sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet who those who bring the good news. Friends, verse 15 crescendos with the utter necessity of God's people sharing the gospel with those that have not heard so that they can be saved. Do you hear that? You see it? It's as plain as day, right? You have to share the gospel, which leads you on the road of believing and calling and being saved, right? It's, it's so clear. So you want to know how can people be saved who don't have the opportunity to hear the gospel? You and I have to give them the opportunity to hear the gospel. That's how they can be saved, brothers and sisters. Let me plead with you just for a moment. Let me just plead with you. It is far easier for us to compromise our theology and the clear teaching of Scripture and argue hypothetical cases and dream up reasons why this person who hasn't heard the gospel really is not lost than to face the fact that it is our responsibility to share the gospel with them and that hearing and responding to the gospel is the only way a person can be saved, right? Friends, just think about the logic of, of this. What if I'm wrong? What if the scripture's wrong? What if a person never hears the gospel and they're okay in the end? What if they're okay, right? You never hear the gospel and they're okay. Let's think through this logic a bit. If a lost sinner who's never heard the gospel dies in a state of never hearing the gospel is ultimately saved, 
then what are we doing when we share the gospel with them? We are making them accountable, are we not? Because then they're accountable. It would be better off if we never shared with them at all. Right? Follow my logic? Is that what the Bible says? No. That is not what the Bible says at all. Finally, there is good news here. God sends more revelation to those who respond in faith. The wonderful and hopeful news today is that for those who have never heard the gospel, if they respond in faith to the revelation that God has given them, if by God's prevenient grace he works in their life and they see the mountains and they see the stars and they see the streams and they say God exists and he's good and I am not holy and he is holy and they respond in faith, God in his grace responds by giving them more light. Where light is received, more light is given. We see this principle at work in at least two instances. And because we don't have time, I will refer them to you. The first is found in Acts chapter 8. You may be familiar with the story. It's Stephen and the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember the story, right? He's in the carriage and he's going. And the Holy Spirit transports Stephen to where he is. And this man did not have the gospel. And God sent Stephen to him. The second is Peter and the Gentile god fearer by the name of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. A very similar thing happens. God gives him a vision. He's a God-fearer. He's not heard the gospel. But he is commended in God's eyes. And God gives him more revelation because he's responding to the revelation that he's been given. Now what's fascinating is that in both of these examples, how does God get that revelation to those two men? It's through Christians, right? It's through Christians. Friends, that's how God works. God prompts and sends Christians to go to these people because they're responding to what they had heard in faith. Friends, let me close by saying this. If what I am saying is not true, then, for instance, what Joel Kaufman did in Japan was an utter waste. Utter waste. If what I'm saying, that what Andy and Colleen Keltner did uh, for those years in Lebanon was foolishness for them to do, If what I'm saying is true, then Harold and Connie Davis spent the last three decades of their life for absolutely nothing. If what I'm saying is not true, then what are we doing? What are we doing? But if what I am saying is true, then the real question is not, the real question is not, why is Jessica Flinkman going to China? The question is not, why is Stephen and Amy going to Rwanda? No. The real question is, why are we staying here? Why are we not involved? Why are we not going on short-term mission trips? Why are we not praying for them? Why are we not supporting them? That is the question. If what the Scripture says is true, is true. And friends, what the Scripture says is true, is true. Let's pray. Oh, Father, convict us, we pray, because it's easier to compromise and to take responsibility. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. See you next week, guys.